I'm Cindy Maurer, and you're tuned in to the Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley Coiner podcast. Hi, Cindy. How are you today? I'm great. <laughs> I'm super excited to be able to talk to you today and share a little bit of information about what a lot of people probably call canine physical therapy, but like we were talking about before, it might be called canine rehabilitation. But before we talk about that, I think it would be great for our listeners to know what background is a little bit like, why did you, how did you get to be, do this? And, and, and what did it take to become a rehabilitator? Well, my background is have been doing physical, human physical therapy for more than 40 years. So I um, actually started out with an associate's degree in physical therapy. So I was licensed as a physical therapist assistant. And then I worked my way through graduate uh, school and doctorate school. So I had initially had a master's degree in physical therapy and then culminated in a doctorate degree of physical therapy, which now is the entry level degree for a physical therapist today. Yeah. So I have two, well, I had now have just one dog hunter who is a four-year-old Labrador retriever, but I had a 12 and a half year old uh, Labrador Allie, who was a wonder. And um, she had an orthopedic injury early on when she was about a little over a year old. She evolved a ligament in her paw, which is called your medial collateral ligament. And an avulsion fracture means that the ligament actually pulled off a little piece of the bone that connects the uh, toe to the to the paw, to the mid paw. And in people, we would, a third degree sprain like that or an avulsion fracture, they would most likely get a surgical intervention where they would reattach the ligament. They would be splinted, you know, kept stable for several weeks and then allowed to have more motion again. And, and unfortunately, this isn't really wasn't an option for Allie. And so I just couldn't understand how we couldn't treat the dog the same way that we did people. And don't we have splints for them if we, you know, just put them on, give them anti-inflammatory medication and leash walk them for two weeks. And, and what I started noticing was that that injury in her paw began to change the way she moved in general through her, all of her activities. She was a very active dog. She loved to fetch. We walked about four and a half miles a day normally. And I started to see things happen in what we call the kinetic chain. So, you know, where your body, where your foot hits the floor and movement is happening up our body. It's the same in the dogs I have since um, learned. So so that sort of led me into a path of animal rehab and understanding animal rehab. We were referred to a big center in Maryland. And these are the folks that kind of initially started animal rehabilitation, Dr. Sherman Knapp and Dr. Lofikas um, out in Annapolis Junction, Maryland. And they've done quite a bit of research in this field and developed a lot of the protocols that we now use today for all different types of animal rehab, whether it be a TPLO, a surgery on the knee for the dog or a hip replacement, or if we're treating any other orthopedic injury in the dog, these interventions, surgical interventions,
interventions and the rehabilitation methods that we're using today were developed by a lot of these veterinarians, used a lot of um, human medicine models. Mm -hmm. And so when I took Allie there to be evaluated for this uh, paw injury, I was uh, had the privilege of seeing their beautiful rehab facility. I, I was bitten by the bug. I was like, <laughs> I have got to do this. This is so cool. <laughs> I, I just think that animals deserve this and that we should be able to care for them as well as we do for people. So that kind of led me on the journey to explore how to get a certification as a, what is called a, K, a certified canine rehab practitioner. How long did it take you to get your cert? I, and congratulations, you just recently got your full certification. So, yeah. but how long did that process take? Well, it took, it took me about three and a half years. Um, so it's it, in order to be able to uh, register or be involved in the program. So this program is through the University of Tennessee and it's a veterinary medicine program collaborated with the physical therapy program and they wrote this curriculum. And if you go straight through, because you, you, there's several online classes, then you have to go to Tennessee for a hands-on class. You, you know, then you have to go through kind of a testing process. You have to write some case studies and you have to do a full week of internship in an animal rehab process. So I think the fastest you could probably do it is about two years, but it took me just about three years. Well, and COVID didn't help either, but, um, no. <laughs> but yeah, it's that, you know, and, and in order to be in the program, I, I, I think you said this, but I'm not sure you have to be either a veterinarian, right. Or yes. a human physical, already a human physical therapist, or also yeah. a technician. Is that correct? A, a registered veterinary technician? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, a vet, veterinarian, a veterinarian technician, a physical therapist, and now they're actually allowing physical therapist assistants to participate in the program. Oh, and so the, the track is a little different. If you're a veterinarian or a veterinarian assistant, you don't have to take the basic um, veterinarian classes. <laughs> so there's a couple of extra classes that the physical therapist has to take. One is zoonosis. Mm -hmm. And then um, we take a basic introduction to veterinary medicine. Okay. And then the, the courses are then common you know, orthopedic and neurological conditions in dogs, and then the surgical interventions, and then the rehab methods that, that you would do. So it's, it was really, really interesting, just amazing. I just loved the whole thing. It was just fascinating just to learn the differences between humans, because, you know, we're bipedal and dogs are on all fours. And when we go back to that little injury for Allie, it started to really make sense why just a little injury to her paw could really change her movement all the way down her spine as dogs bear most of their weight on their forelimbs. Mm -hmm. So very different, you know, from humans. And so you have to start to understand um, the same concepts of, of course, the anatomy, which is really similar to mm -hmm. people, but also what we call kinesiology and kinematics. And we study gait. Mm -hmm. So a lot of gait analysis, like how does a dog move? What's normal movement? What's um, abnormal movement? There's different types of gaits. The dogs walk, trot, gallop, you know, there's all kinds of things. And motion is happening differently depending upon which one of those things that they're doing. And so then you're trained to look at the dog and each of those 
kinds of activities and start to see where they might be having some issues with either joint stiffness or pain or lack of flexibility or weakness, all those kinds of things. So it's super fun. I know. I think it's the thing I always share with people is, you know, dogs and humans have so much in common with their anatomy. And, you know, when I'm working with behavior, I'm talking about our brains are very similar. There's some changes, right. but everything is so similar. And right. so the same thing happens also, you know, with other medicine, whether, you know, it's, you know, what body part they are. What now, I know that you're just starting out. So you have not tons and tons of hands-on experience, like in a clinic yet with animals, but you've done some. And what would yes. you say, you know, you've worked with thousands, I would guess, thousands and thousands of people. Yes. But when you work with dogs, what do you find, you know, the biggest difference? I mean, there might be some pros and cons, you know, just yeah. with cooperation or lack of cooperation, but also, yeah. you know, abilities. Well, um, you know, I have to say that was one of my biggest fears is that I, I, I do this very well with people and we get along, we get great results and there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of education. And, and so obviously dogs don't talk. And so I think one of the most important things that helped me was I do understand a little bit about animal behavior and animal language. So their, their, their nonverbal communication that they do with us. And that comes from uh, Allie being a therapy dog. And that's part of our, that was part of our training for her to be a therapy dog was to look at how animals respond to stress. So I think that's important that you know, I kind of have that in the background um, of observations. I am, I would say, sensitive to animals. So I think I am sensitive to when they are feeling stressed. So the number one thing I felt like when I was handling animals and learning to handle animals is to establish trust and to make it, make it a, a good, positive experience. Maybe you're not going to get everything you want that first time. You can save some of the tests and measures or save some things for, it might take you two or three times to get the whole picture because we do a full evaluation on the dog. Um, so we do, we're trained to do a full, full orthopedic and neurological evaluation on the dog assessing joints and soft tissue and all those things. But I mean, I think the first thing is to establish trust and, and understand sort of the signs of pain in a dog too. So you don't want to cause pain. You want it to be a very positive experience. And, and I have to say, I was really, really pleasantly surprised that all the dogs that I encountered not only let me handle them, but they, they, uh, they kind of showed me where they want me to, where they want their massage or where they might want some help. And, and so they really do want help. They really do want to feel better. And they're so grateful for just, you know, the time that you spend as long as it's a positive experience. Have you found that dogs that are better trained are easier to work with, or does it really matter at all? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Hands down. I mean, and that was one of the experiences that I had in our week-long seminar, hands-on seminar that we did in North Carolina. And I was a little surprised. I mean, there were 60 of us there and only nine of us were physical therapists. And the first time we saw them flip a dog, all the therapists went, oh, you know, and, and so you know, it's faster, but a well-trained dog, you can have it sit, go down and you can lure them into a lateral recumbent position, which is a much nicer experience for a dog than being forced into, mm -hmm. to any kind of 
position. So a well-trained dog can get you a lot, you know, um, a lot of places doing therapy because sometimes we're using balls, you know, to get them to put their paws on, or we're getting them to sit on um, uneven surfaces like BOSU balls or teeters, or we're getting them to get on a treadmill and a, and a, and a well-trained dog is, is, you know, real easy. Even just the basic commands of sit and down and stay or come or, um, you know, a balanced dog, usually a well-trained dog is a balanced dog. And so they're generally easier to work with, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. 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 And if they're super fearful, you know, or have had negative experiences at the vet or things, those would probably be challenges. You definitely have to sometimes overcome too, you know, yes. depending on where your, you know, environment is since dogs are so, you know, sensitive to their environment. So if you're, if your office doesn't remind them of a vet, they might be more willing if they're afraid of the vet too. So that yeah, and makes I, a difference. Yeah, well, and then taking small steps to sort of understanding what your end goal is and taking little steps. I mean, I know there was one dog that when I was going to two hands, four paws in Los Angeles for my internship and they had a pool and she was, she was basically a tetraplegic. So um, from a cervical injury and very fearful of the water and they were just wonderful. They just did, you know, little bits at a time, made it fun, lots of treats. You know, she happened to like these little fish treats and, you know, so they do get a lot of treats while they're getting therapy <laughs> and that helps. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, and if a dog isn't food motivated, then you find a toy that they like or some other kind of motivation or the family members bring in treats for them or, you know, you, you really communicate with the owners to get to know the dogs so that you know their likes and their dislikes and um, all that's taken into consideration when you're modeling the, the therapy program for them. And it's funny when you bring up treats because obviously as a positive reinforcement trainer, I use, you know, treats and And sometimes you come up with those dogs who, and you might have this because if they were overweight and they got their injury, partly because of obesity or, you know, um, you know, that's a a challenge that you probably have to face sometimes too, because I know personally, I have people who have the overweight dog and they're like, well, the vet said they can't gain any more weight. So I have to come up with, you know, strategies and having them reduce their, you know, their kibble intake or find calorie treats that they like. So you probably have to take that into consideration sometimes too. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes they'll have to hold their meal and they'll bring the kibble to therapy. So we'll use the kibble that they would have maybe had for their meal, but also, you know, they're moving. So that's a positive because they're not just being treated. They're actually moving. And the more movement you get, the more calories you're burning. Mm -hmm. Um, But we used things like um, taking a Kong and putting pumpkin in it Mm -hmm. and freezing the pumpkin. So that's a little less calories, say, than like peanut butter or banana in the pumpkin, that sort of thing or in the Kong. Um, So there's, I think lots of strategies. I mean, some they used veg, if they're very food motivated, you could use carrots or snap peas. (laughs) Yeah, I know it's so fascinating. I mean, as obviously as a vet tech and a behavior in doing behavior and dog training and agility, I, I think all of this is fascinating. And I think rehabilitation is so important. And it is interesting, you know, when we're talking, you know, you really, if anybody's listening because they, may possibly want this as a career. I'm thinking big, like you're just talking about, you know, it's not just, okay, well, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this, this exercise with this dog, or I'm going to put them up on the treadmill. Like you have to be able to 
pay attention to their behavior, pay attention to their anxiety levels. Um, no, you don't have to be a nutritionist, but you have to, you know, be responsive. You can, I have to do the same thing. I can't just say, well, if you want your dog trained, you got to give them hot dogs or else they're not going to train. You have to be able to, to work on the whole picture of the dog. What makes them nervous? What can they handle? Not just the physically physical that you're working with. And so, you know, seeing that it's not just a, a tunnel vision, you know, effect. I think that's something that you have that you've gained throughout the years, but you may not have known when you first jumped into this as a career. No, well, I think exactly. I mean, you have to have, I think knowing what your end game is like mm -hmm. for each session that, so I want, you know, say the dog had a TPLO surgery, which is a surgery they do for the cranial cruciate ligament injury, which is unfortunately becoming more common in dogs today. And so they'll lose stifle motion or their knee, they lose extension. And so if, if your intention is to get stifle and extension and you, you have something in mind, so it's very much like people, maybe like the injury that you're going through right now. <laughs> we want to get five degrees of extra extension this week. So what are the things that we can do? And we have sort of a big toolbox to work from. Um, is it, you know, soft tissue work? We could put a little heat on the dog first and do a nice passive stretch. We can massage it. That always makes a good friend when you're massaging dog and you can start in the more proximal joints all around their hip and their back and those areas, you know, you can do activities on, you know, the, um, the different apparatuses, they could go in the water, they could use the underwater treadmill. So there's lots of different options that you can use. And I think if you have your end game in mind, I, I need more stifle extension. And then eventually I'm going to go for more stability with stifle extension. So strength and how might I get that in this session today? And they do, you know, I, the one thing that was really, um, a, a, I think a real good tool there is that they had a lot of staff at the facility that I went to. So there were always generally there are always two handlers. Mm -hmm. So one kind of keeping the dog motivated and one, you know, really doing the therapeutic interventions once you got into those more challenging things. So, but yes, I think just staying flexible and having your end goal for that day in mind, and then your end goal in the end in mind, because with injuries, you can't let things go too long before you see so this, you know, range of motion come because then scarring and other things happen. And so that's where the knowledge um, about tissue healing is really important, even for our animals, because there are certain phases that are normal part of an injury. Inflammation is the first early phase. That's usually just the first couple of weeks. And then beyond that, so that's really when we do want to rest. But beyond that, we want to start to modulate things. We want to try to keep that inflammation down as much as possible, but still get movement so we don't start getting scarring that can happen, especially if there's been any kind of surgical intervention. Yeah, and, so and, and then getting, you probably have to have some, you know, also cooperation with the pet, the pet parents, because if, you know, you're do this, but you can't see them every single day. And, you know, with humans, you know, I'm like, as you're saying, I mean, going through my physical therapy, I have to do a little bit every day. I have to keep going or I'm not going to move forward. And with these animals, when you're working with a dog, you can't tell the dog, okay, dog, <laughs> every day, I want you to do this for 10 minutes and do this for, you know, whatever. 
you have to have um, buy-in from those, you know, clients, the human client part. And do you, you know, that's something as another piece that people don't always realize when you're talking about animals and veterinary medicine or behavior or rehabilitation is you have to be a team. You know, you have to be able to work with these clients because if you just focus on the dog only right. and you're not educating the client and you're not involving the client, that client's going to go home and not do any of the exercise. And then you might see that dog again in a week or whenever your recheck is. And it could be like you were just saying, if they just rested it, maybe now there's scar tissue and they can actually go backwards, I would assume. Yes. Yes. So patient education is the most important thing. If you understand you as a, and as a human patient, understand your health condition very well Mm -hmm. and the stages of healing for that health condition, we get really good buy-in on Mm -hmm. if I give you, and I don't give, you know, a whole bunch of things. I give two or three things Mm -hmm. and say, please practice these, you know, it's important to practice these two or three things every day, like you said, and sometimes it's more than once a day. Mm -hmm. And then this is what we're expecting. And, you know, we're going to keep changing these exercises or interventions as time goes goes on. But even with the animals, you know, the educating the owners is a key thing because it's, it's no different than doing training and expecting an outcome without actually doing the daily practice. And that's really what the important thing. And with tissue healing, it's, you know, you do get kind of a critical mass where you have less control over really what human, you know, kind of what our bodies are going to do, which is to start to lay down scar tissue. And so I think that it, you know, it can be hard because there isn't a lot of awareness, I think, around this subject on how important owner education is Mm -hmm. for their role and responsibility in caring for the animal, especially if they've chosen to have a surgical intervention or there needed to be a surgical intervention. So it's, I think there's a lot of tools out there that they have now for education, which isn't, we use them, we use computer models, we handouts for people, we demonstrate, that's one really good thing is to do the exercises or the interventions. You know, if you want them to stretch the dog's knee three times a day, spend time showing the owner how to stretch the knee. And then that's the first thing I check when they come back. That's the first thing I check in a human physical therapy um, (laughs) visit or an animal. I'm going to recheck the last homework I gave you. And we're going to go back over that. And it's, you know, it starts to become, you know, pretty apparent how much compliance you're getting. And, and, you know, I think that was one of the things I heard when I was in North Carolina and, uh, you know, week-long seminar for hands-on, there was, it seemed a lot of resistance for how much owners would participate in doing these things. But I really haven't found that personally. I think if you do spend the time to educate them about their dog's health condition and how important these little things um, are and how much they matter and that you're, you're rechecking and they understand exactly what it is that you're trying to get more shoulder extension or you're trying to get more knee extension or you need them to sit square or we need to see better strength or we need to see this in their walking pattern before we can uh, do something else. I I think that um, the owners do really well if they understand. And it is, I mean, and it's something too, you know, setting up those expectations from, and you have to have another part of your job is having a relationship with the surgeon, if it's a surgical case or veterinarians, because 
setting up that expectation for the client, because I know from my experience, when I was really working heavily as a vet tech, rehabilitation was there, but it was very minimal. Usually it was a surgeon recommending something. And I think a lot of times the clients who didn't know they were going to have to do any kind of rehabilitation with their dog, you know, they thought that this surgery was going to be done and they were going to be fixed. And then they were just going to let them, you know, cage rest. Maybe they were prepared for cage rest, but that was it. Those people had a harder time. What? I have to do what? Every day, what? But if you go into it, just like a human, like my knee surgery, you know, when I talked to the surgeon, he, he was like, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to be able to do this. We're going to get you into physical therapy. I mean, my physical therapy appointments were made before my surgery was even completed. So I was on the books. This is what we're going to do. So I didn't come out of surgery saying, oh, well, I'm going to be fixed as soon as I'm done. I knew it was going to be a road and it may be a little longer or a little shorter than what they expect, but at least that expectation is set ahead of time. And that's, I think, something where if you could cooperate, you would get more buy-in from your from clients. Oh, absolutely. And they're not thinking the, and and perhaps there hasn't been a long conversation about what it really means to have an injury and have potentially a surgical intervention and then have a rehab phase after that. And what is going on with those tissues, not just the ligament, but the muscle atrophy, the disuse and how that can change even the bone strength and it can change your core strength. It can change all kinds of other things. And so, you know, the dogs are already in a dehabilitated state, you know, because that if we just take the cranial cruciate ligament injury, I mean, the current concept is, is this is a degenerative type injury. It's not like a quick injury. Usually there is some already degeneration of the ligament because of the, the actual structure of the dog, the slope of their tibia. So we're thinking, you know, these dogs already have atrophy of their quadriceps and their hamstrings and their gluteal muscles on that one, you know, limb because they've been compensating. They've already got early onset of osteoarthritis in their knee, you know, so it's not just a surgery and you're fixed and you're done. I mean, this is, you're talking about probably months or even years, maybe of, of some level of physiological changes that are going on within that dog's limb there. And, you know, the second part of that is that now they're maybe not as active and then their, um, their body composition store score goes up. So they're a little pudgy mm-hmm. and then they're not able to exercise. And now we, start to get kind of in a little bit of a vicious cycle when we know that if a dog gets overweight that you actually can take three years off of the dog's life by it just having a elevated body composition score so I think it's really being able to look at that big picture um, and and help the owners understand a little bit more about what a, a well dog looks like a well-balanced dog looks like you know a a healthy dog a dog that's being well cared for a dog that's um, getting a lot of um, behavioral and cognitive stimulation and all these other things I mean that's really what we're looking at kind of as a well dog (laughs) exactly well and, and you've talked a little bit about you know injury obviously but are there things that people can do whether they're you know I mean, um, with sports, you know, obviously like when I was competing with my dogs in agility, you know, I have warmups that I would do like before, a, you know, because especially like in practice, like when I teach my agility classes, we kind of start with the 
easy stuff and we kind of let their bodies warm up a little bit. You know, I don't put them on, you know, these big things. But if I go to a competition, I'm on the start line and go. And I know I see people in competition, you know, their dog stays in the crate until two Uh, seconds, you know, then they get in the line and there's no like warm up per se. And, and I would imagine that that leads to a lot of injury. I mean, for mine don't, because I'm, I have them up moving and we're stretching and they're doing bows and they're going between my legs and, you know, they're warming up their spine. What are something you could suggest to people to help prevent injuries in sports or just every day? Sometimes things happen. Like, as you know, my dog jumped up on the bed and missed and injured his back. So that was just, I mean, that wasn't, we were getting ready for bed. It was just an accident. So accidents are going to happen, but some things can be prevented if we put a little time in. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the biggest one, like we, um, I just alluded to a little earlier is watching that, what we call the body composition score. And so an overweight dog is definitely more prone to an injury than a dog that's fit. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you know, they say, look down over the top of your dog's back and you definitely need to see that waistline and, and be able to see that kind of coming in a little bit, obviously taking the dog to the vet and, and, you know, the annual checkups, you're getting weighed and you can, you can weigh your dog too. You can take it to the vet and weigh it and, um, or the wharf or, you know, lots of different places have scales. So watch their weight. Number one. The other thing is, is to keep the dog fit. You, you, you know, we talk, talk to people about being weekend warriors. Well, you can't just take your dog to agility on the weekends and do nothing with them the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. These dogs, there's a high expectation. That's a lot of high impact kind of movement. And so they should be on a regular fitness program where they're taking long walks or walk run programs on a daily basis. I mean, I think if I recall right, the actual length of time that the dogs walk. So it was mileage and it was right around five to six miles a day. Those dogs actually did the best for injury prevention and longevity rather than a dog that was run a lot, like high, heavy running or not enough activity. So it's right around in that four or five, you know, mile. So that's, that's really getting your dog out and, you know, walking 30 minutes, like we're supposed to do a couple of times. Yes. Exactly. And not just, not just picking up that tennis ball and throwing it, letting them go crazy and going from just like us. I mean, if I went out and tried to sprint, (laughs) I'm going to hurt, you know, if I'm not doing that on a regular basis and I haven't built it up, you know, warming them up a little bit. Exactly. And always, um, that's Hunter. (laughs) And always, always warming up before an activity like agility or something where the dog has to do more of that high impact kind of stuff. So they should be definitely, if they're in a crate, they should be taken out and walk for a minimum of 20 to 30 minutes beforehand. And like you said, you know, if you can teach the dog basic little commands like a bow or going from down to sit or pause up. So you're stretching the spine and the shoulders or getting them to move through your legs. Like you said, those kinds of things or even doing, you know, just circles with the dogs um, on the leash for your spine, but definitely warming up the dog before it does any kind of high impact. A lot of people think if I throwing, I, you know, I'm going to throw the tennis ball for them for 20 minutes and that's their exercise for the day. Well, you're more likely to hurt your dog in that situation than actually help them out. They don't really have any good cardiovascular fitness because that's all very high impact, you know, short kind 
the fasters are, are going, not the, not the more, you know, stabilizing muscle fibers that are in our core and our bigger muscles. And, you know, a lot of dogs like being massaged and stretched. So you can, you know, learn there's lots of different videos on basic stretching for dogs and um, different activities that you can do to give dogs a little bit of stretch. And I think their nutrition is important too, that they're on a balanced diet and they're not getting a lot of people food. There's good reason. You know, that sort of thing. Nutraceuticals, the supplements have some good, good efficacy for using fish oil or cosequin or desequin, those kinds of things as part of their diet. There's uh, pretty good evidence um, for all of that too. Yeah. Well, that is super great. Well, we're coming to the end. Do you have anything else that you would just think that would be a, like a, a little information nugget? I mean, we've gone through, I feel so much. I feel like people are really going to understand what it takes to become rehabilitation. It will also what means some great tips on how they can help their own dog, whether it's surgical, preventing surgery, you know, preventing anything. Do you have any other like last minute nugget or um, tips that you would like to share with every, anyone listening? Well, as I'm sitting here looking at Hunter, I would say, you know, enjoy the bond that you have with your dog each and every day. Um, you know, try to spend a little time every day. I mean, I try to dedicate, you know, five to 10 minutes each day to doing some kind of enrichment activity. Mm-hmm. And these things can pay you a lot of dividends if your dog ever is hurt. So if you, you know, I mean, we still even Allie, you know, up until the time she passed, I'd say, anybody want to do puppy kindergarten? And they come running and we just, you know, do a few from, you know, puppy puppy push-ups to downstairs to, um, you know, leave a treat or whatever it is um, that we're spending a few minutes on. I mean, they're both involved in, they were, I mean, and Hunter still is involved in nose work. So that's really great work for cognitive stimulation for the dog. And, you know, we take walks, we go out to the beach, we spend time doing agility. So I think the closer the bond is, um, that you have your with your dog, the better you know your dog, and the better you'll be able to advocate for their wellness because you'll pick up on um, issues probably long before your vet will on the annual exam. Oh, I can guarantee. I mean, with Captain, he jumped up on the bed, and if I didn't know him well, I may have just when he laid. Well, he was panting. I I knew it was different instantly. I knew, and that helped because then I was able to contact you, and I was able to you know get him on medication right away and, and really get him, you know, right away. But someone else, I mean, sometimes I will ask a client, how long has her gait been different? Because I notice it's different and they go, what are you talking about? And then I start pointing it out and who knows how long that dog's been going through that. And then that bond is so important because when they were hurt or they're scared, you know, when captain hurt himself on the bed, I mean, he didn't have that trust with me. He went to come to me when he was nervous and in pain. And I was able to go, okay, I know this is, I'm pretty sure this is your back just because he let me touch him, even if it was uncomfortable. But if we didn't have that relationship, he might have just avoided me. And then I went to be able to get him the help that, or I went to recognize it to be able to get him the help he needed as quickly. So I think that's a great tip just in general, but you just never know. I mean, I did not, Captain was doing agility with me, not competing anymore, but you know, fun. We were just hanging out. That I mean, he was, did it the day before. He may have even done it that day because I don't remember the sequence of things. But one night, I mean, he's retired. He and I could probably now do some weave pulls and non-contact things with him because he's 
more mobile, but you know, you just never know. And you just want to make sure that you're building all of that, you know, with them all the time. So I think that's a great overall tip, but especially because you just don't know um, when an injury is going to occur, um, you know, and you might need to do some stuff that's weird to them. So, right. Right. Yeah. So. And they're not with us that long. So we <laughs> no. really, we really want to, you know, make each day a, a good day. So. Yeah. Have it, cool. have it be fun. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Cindy, for Welcome. talking to us today. And I really enjoyed it. And hopefully everyone learned a lot tonight, today. So, well, thank you so much. And um, I know I will see you and I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. So thanks again. You're welcome. It was great to be with you today.